Welcome back to the Consciousness Explorers podcast. As Tasha likes to say, the Mind Bod Adventure, Adventure Pod, Pod, where basically every episode we explore a different guided practice that takes us into the mind and body and we learn something about what's happening on the inside, about where we can go, how we can help ourselves, change ourselves, explore ourselves. So I'm your host, Jeff Warren, and with me is my friend and co-host, Tasha Schumann. I'm Tasha, yo. So our guest today is Dr. David Spiegel, who is a pioneer in hypnosis research. He's at the University of Stanford. And even in just the hour that we had together, totally changed my view of hypnosis. Not that I had a bad view of it before. I just didn't know and I'd never tried it. So this was really transformative for me and just eye-opening in what can happen in hypnosis. And Jeff has kind of a history with his family that you want to tell us a little bit about how you got to know the Spiegels. Yeah, well, I got the idea to have him on the podcast because 20 years ago when I was researching my book, The Head Trip, which is all about different states of consciousness, I actually profiled his dad, Herbert Spiegel. The two of them wrote this very famous manual of hypnosis called Trance and Treatment. You know, hypnosis, there's all these different kind of subcultures within hypnosis. And he's very much in the clinical subculture of like clinicians interested in how to apply hypnosis to actual psychological and physical problems and applying it in hospital type settings. And so I actually got hypnotized by his dad in New York in his dad's apartment. Uh, his dad was 92 at the time, so he's since passed away. And it was it really left a strong impression on me. So that's why I thought of um, getting Dr. Spiegel on. So Tasha's already said a little bit about what she liked about the episode. For me, not only is it fascinating to find out what your own natural capacity for trance is, and we had this whole typology of doing these different hypnotic inductions and seeing how hypnotizable you are. And so that's going to be true for the listeners, too. But there's also a whole thing at the end we get into about how this has the potential to sort of democratize mental health, how it's this innate capacity for healing that we ourselves can tap into. We don't need drug companies or even special therapists to help us do it. And that was inspiring to me. Just a note, during the first hypnosis practice, there is a telephone that goes off in the background in Dr. Spiegel's home. So just giving you a heads up about that. Okay. Dr. Spiegel, welcome to the Consciousness Explorers podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's so good to have you. Hi, Tasha. We are excited to explore hypnosis. I mean, this is a podcast that's all about exploring mind-body connection, exploring different states and modalities. And hypnosis, trance, it's such a big category. How would you present hypnosis and trance to people who don't know much about it? And what can you say about this actual practice you're going to guide us in? Sure, Jeff and Tasha. Thank you for having me here. Hypnosis is actually the oldest Western conception of a psychotherapy. It's the first time that a talking interaction between a doctor and a patient was thought to have therapeutic benefit. Um, and what it is, is really a state of highly focused attention. It's something like getting so caught up in a good movie or a play or reading a novel that you, f you enter the imagined world. It's been called believed in imagination. You focus attention, you allow yourself to fully engage with the idea, and you tend to suspend critical judgment. You worry about what it means later. You just engage in it now. So it's like when you've seen a movie at the time, you got really caught up in it. And later you think, well, I didn't like the actor that much and the plot didn't make that much sense, but you engaged in it. So hypnosis is a state in which you can fully absorb your attentional capacity, uh, suspend evaluating it relatively to a later time, uh, 
and allow yourself to become fully immersed in what you're doing. So it's a good platform for expanding your ability to change situations you didn't think you could change, uh, to see things from a new and different point of view, and to alter your state of consciousness. You know, a, a big part of what we do every day, like when we wake up this morning, is we're different from the way we were the night before because we went to sleep. Now, hypnosis is not sleep, but the ability to change your state of mind is an important component of mental flexibility. And hypnosis is one of those changes that you don't have to wait till nighttime to go to sleep for. You can change your mental state very rapidly in a few minutes and benefit from doing that. Well, we'll get into this after the actual hypnosis experience, but these benefits include medical benefits. There's actual changes that can happen both in psychology, but also down in the body itself. So there's some discussion of that in the hypnosis literature. Yes, it is. Look, the brain is the master regulator of the body. It's connected to every part of the body. And it would be strange indeed if we couldn't use our brain to alter sensations, to alter the way parts of our body function, because they're all innervated and we have control over them. So just as you get, when you see something psychologically arousing, you become physically aroused, your heart rate, blood pressure may go up a little bit. Right now you're having sensations in your bottoms touching the chairs you're sitting on, but hopefully you were not aware of that until I brought it to your attention. If you were, we can just stop now. So the brain is very good at saying, this is important, this isn't, pay attention to it or don't. And that means you can modulate things like pain, for example. You can literally change how much pain you feel by changing the way you focus on it or something else. So uh, it's a way of making better use of the power the brain has to help regulate the body. Okay, well, you're going to actually guide us in and all the listeners in uh, hypnotic induction. And afterwards, we can talk maybe more about who's susceptible, who's not, because there are different capacities in this, in this That's respect. That's correct. Can you say anything about the practice you're going to guide us in or anything that the listener needs to know before we start? Well, first of all, uh, yeah, don't do it if you're driving a car. That's not a good idea. And it may amuse <laughs> you to know that, that the beginning of the last century when cars were invented, there was a lot of concern about putting windshield wipers on cars. Because the thought was that people, you know, the old dangling watch like thing. Exactly. That's exactly right. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, and fortunately, it doesn't seem to happen. People look through them, not at them. Uh, so it, but it is, I wouldn't recommend it while driving because you've got to turn inward and focus inward. And that's not a good thing to do when driving a car or crossing the street. So be in a safe, comfortable so pull place. Over. Pull over. That's right. Get comfy. <laughs> you got it. Doctor. That's it. <laughs> But other than that, uh, I've never lost somebody in a hypnotic state. People go in and they come out. And uh, it's, it's actually a natural thing that people do when they get absorbed in a movie or reading a book. So it's a focused attention that can change what you do. But it's something that if you have the ability, we wind up using it all the time anyway. So let's just use it better. I'm so excited to try this out. I've never been hypnotized before uh -huh. in my life. So. That, that really? You, that you yeah, know never. <laughs> really? <laughs> that I know of. Yes, exactly. Not not consciously entering into right. <laughs> hypnosis. Got it. Okay. All right. All right, Dr. Svengali, take <laughs> us into your world. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, all right. Get as comfortable as you can sitting in a chair or a couch or lying in bed. Get as comfortable as you can.
I'm going to ask you on one to do one thing. Look up all the way up high as you can. Pass your eyebrows. That's good. All the way up. And as you keep looking up, slowly close your eyes. Close, close, close. Good. Very good. Close. Take a deep breath. Let the breath out. Let your eyes relax, but keep them closed and let your body float. Imagine that you're floating somewhere safe and comfortable, like a bath, a lake, a hot tub, or just floating in space. Each breath deeper and easier. Feel your body floating, and with each breath out, let a little more of the tension out of your body. Breathe in, one, two, Hold your breath. Now breathe in again, three, four, as deeply as you can. And then slowly exhale, very slowly. Let the breath out. Feel yourself floating as if you were in a bath, a lake, a hot tub, or just floating in space. And please notice how quickly and easily you can use your store of memories and your imagination to help yourself and your body feel better. Each breath deeper and easier, body floating, safe and comfortable. If you happen to have any discomfort in your body, Imagine that that part of your body is warmer or cooler or tingling or numb. And notice how you can alter the sensation there. Filter the hurt out of the pain if there is any pain. By imagining that you're putting an ice pack or a warm compress on that part of your body. And let it filter the hurt out of any discomfort you might have. If you don't have any discomfort, just enjoy the sensation of floating lightness and buoyancy that you can produce so quickly and easily. Now, please picture in your mind's eye an imaginary screen. It could be a movie screen, a TV screen, or a piece of clear blue sky. And picture on it a pleasant scene, somewhere you enjoy being a view of the ocean, a mountain hike, a sunset, and just enjoy engaging with that image. And notice how as you picture it, you experience some of the feelings that came with seeing something beautiful and comforting. Each breath deeper and easier. Again, inhale slowly. Hold your breath. Inhale your lungs fully and then gently let the breath out. Now let's suppose that something is causing you stress right now. There are many things that are giving us all stress. 
pick one, divide the screen in half, and picture one thing that's causing you stress, an image of one thing that's causing you stress on the left side of the screen while your body remains floating and buoyant. And notice how you can picture something that causes you stress without necessarily having the physiological reactions to stress that we often have. And the lesson that comes from this is that even if you can't immediately control the stressor, you can control the effect it has on your body. So you picture the stress on the left side of the screen, but maintain a sense of floating lightness and buoyancy in your body. Each breath deeper and easier. Now we're gonna use the right side of the screen as your problem solving screen. Each breath deeper and easier. Problem solving screen on the right. Picture one thing you can do on the right side of the screen to deal with the problem on the left. It may not be the ultimate answer, but it's one way you can address the problem on the left. You can use this state of self-hypnosis to focus in on one problem and one possible solution. And please notice how as you picture a possible solution, you begin to feel different about the problem itself. You begin to see it as something that is manageable, even if not solvable. Each breath deeper and easier. So notice the extent to which you've been able to make your body feel more comfortable. And that has helped you to become more comfortable with a stressor and something you can do about it. Please contemplate the fact that uncertainty goes with life and that what makes our lives better, the things we can do to make them better is not to eliminate uncertainty but to be able to manage it better. To not fight it, but flow with it. In this sense, as you're floating, you might picture yourself the way a surfer would be out there on the waves. And what you try to do is not fight the waves, but flow with them that you master uncertainty and see it as an opportunity to take a new point of view about an old problem and ride the wave of uncertainty 
as you help your body to feel more comfortable and you allow your mind to present you with new ways of dealing with old problems. Find yourself in a position of welcoming whatever it is your mind suggests to you, being open to it. You can examine what your mind presents you with and decide what to do and what you don't want to do. But as you make your body more comfortable, you become more open to your mind providing you with new ways of dealing with old problems. Each breath deeper and easier. So now take a few moments to reflect on what this feels like to you in a private sense. And when you're ready, we'll come out of the state of self-hypnosis together by counting backwards from three to one. On three, you'll get ready. On two, with your eyelids closed, roll up your eyes. One, let your eyes open slowly. That'll be the end of the exercise. How do you feel? Very chill, yeah. How are you doing over there, Jeff? Yeah, very relaxed. Is that yeah. normal? Most people report feeling relaxed? It is, yeah. It does. It, maybe not even relaxed is the right word. It's more like serene. It's like a serenity. Oh, I like that. That's good. So, Tasha, did you get hypnotized? You'd never been hypnotized before. What was that like for you? It was surprisingly, maybe unsurprisingly, very similar to like a kind of like self-regulating meditation. You know, I sit in meditation often. And Jeff, you know this, like I have an autoimmune disorder that sometimes makes my heart rate go up mm. quite high. Mm -hmm. um, and so sometimes I'll just sit and just breathe and almost try to like downregulate my heart rate and my breathing this was actually kind of like a fast forward to that like we did the eye roll up and closed and then immediately my breath was like half the speed that it was before and my heart rate was quite low so it was kind of mm. like a a fast track to doing that so. i'm glad to hear that and were you able to did it work with the screens and that whole piece of it I didn't find the visuals to be as important to me. Like I brought it up, you know, I had this vision of a place that I liked and I had a hard time finding something that was, I'm not, I don't tend to be a very stressed out person. I'm very high energy, but I'm not stressed about things. But I was like, okay, let's pick something that I don't really feel like doing and put it on the screen. And I was kind of wrestling with it because it's conceptual and I couldn't really find an image of it. So I just kind of like placed the feeling on mm -hmm. the screen. Good. If that makes sense. Sure. Um, and I just found them kind of melding together and me not caring about, <laughs> about my feelings about this, about this semi-stressful um, thing that I have to do. So I think mostly what it did for me with that stressful event was kind of just diffuse whatever stressors were there and then it just, you know, I still have to do the thing. It's this thing I said I would do. I don't really feel like doing it, but there's no stress in it. So if there was any any remnants of stress in it, they're gone now. I just, that was like, yeah, well, it's a thing in my life. But I'm, I'm not sure if it was like the hypnosis changed my feelings about it 
or if it's just it wasn't very stressful to begin with. Well, but uh, that's, that's a very nice description. Notice, though, that something that you viewed as, you know, not a major stressor, but an annoyance wound up being a nice experience that yeah. you were able to see it as something you could feel positive about, not negative about. Not- yeah, I guess it, it like it changed the frame. It changed the framing right, of it. Right. For me. Right. That that's sense. the you change the context, and that's one of the things mm-hmm. that, as you narrow the focus of attention in hypnosis, you can do. It's like looking through the telephoto lens of a camera. What you see, you see with great detail, but devoid of the context. Mm-hmm. And so you had a an associational context before that put it in the annoyance. I don't want to do this category, and you were able to see it sort of in itself, stripped of the things that made it more unpleasant for you. Mm-hmm. And I think another thing that I did too was take it out of the avoidance category, like even just inviting it into the screen of my mind. You know, it was this thing I was kind of not thinking about before and bringing it in. It's like, not, you know, it's on the table. I'm not avoiding it anymore. And there's right. that element of it is gone. That's great. That's just the idea. Yeah. Jeff, how about you? This is not your first time. No. Well, and this is really interesting. Well, I'm curious. Uh, I, I'll give a report, but I'm curious from what Tasha said how she fits on your scale of hypnotic capacity. Because I guess one of the things that Dr. Spiegel, you speak about that's really interesting in your approach, and you're in your father's approach in your great book, Trance and Treatment, mm-hmm. is that hypnotic capacity exists on a continuum. And you kind of have three different personality types. And depending on how they do in the eye role, it tells you how susceptible they'll be for mm-hmm. hypnosis. And mm-hmm. so I wondered, based on Tasha's report, is there any sense you have of where she might be on that? We could examine that in a little more detail, but the eye roll itself, that is the capacity to keep looking up while you close your eyes. It's a way of looking inward. You know, we use our eyes as our primary alert system. And in general, when we're alert and looking around in the world, our eyes are open and we're scanning the environment looking for danger. And uh, when we're not, we're usually asleep. What you do in the hypnotic induction is you look up, slowly close your eyes, take a deep breath. And we're interested in particular in the extent to which you can keep your eyes up while you close them, which is neurologically a little difficult to do because you have to suspend lowering your eyes as you lower your eyelids, which is a little difficult to do. And both of you were pretty good. On a, you were three to four on a scale of zero to four in your ability to keep your eyes up while you close them. Because you could see what we were doing because we have the video on. Yeah, I, I can see you, right. And there are other things that we use to examine the capacity to experience hypnosis. And uh, we could test it a little bit if you want to see whether you can make some other psychophysiological changes that are consistent with hypnotizability. But, you know, it, most children are highly hypnotizable. You know, you have an eight-year-old they don't hear you when you call them in for dinner. You know, they're doing their thing. They just, <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, that's why work and play are all the same thing for kids. You know, they get totally absorbed in whatever they're doing. It's a shame that we try to make them into little adults when they learn so much more joyfully without that. But as you go through adolescence and get into your young period in life, you tend to develop a relatively stable degree of hypnotizability. And your hypnotizability at age 21 is correlated with your hypnotizability at age 46, 25 years later, 0.7, which is more stable than IQ is over a 25-year interval. So people get into these states, and you described it well, so there are these personality 
typologies we use to roughly indicate that people who are highly hypnotizable are Dionysians. They just put experience first. They allow themselves to float into it and to change perspectives very easily. They're very sensitive to their environment and what it suggests for them. On the other extreme, the Apollonians are more organized, structured. They don't believe anything they don't read. And they want more to be in control of ideas. And the Odesians, the people in the middle, can move back and forth between those two extremes. And that tends to be a kind of personality style that goes along with hypnotizability. That's absolutely fascinating. Well, I mean, since we're on the subject, like I do want to share my report, but I wonder if, if this would be a good moment actually to take a few minutes to do a little test uh, on our listeners, on us to see how we might begin to gauge where we are in that continuum. Who's Dionysian, who's Apollonian, and who's somewhere in the middle? Okay, we can try that, sure. So let's get again, get as comfortable as you can. On one, do one thing, look up, all the way up, high as you can. Two, two, things. slowly, close your eyes, take a deep breath. And three, do three things, let the breath out. Let your eyes relax, but keep them closed and let your body float. Now I want you to let one hand or the other float up in the air like a balloon. Each breath deeper and easier and let your hand float up in the air. Each breath deeper and easier. You can either hold your whole arm up in the air or bend it at the elbow and let your hand float up in the air. Higher and higher as the rest of your body feels heavy and relaxed. Now I'm going to give you this instruction. Your hand will remain light and in this upright position even after I give you the signal for your eyes to open. If I ask you to take your other hand and push your hand back down to the arm of the chair or to your leg, it will float right back up to the upright position. You'll find something pleasant and amusing about this sensation. Later, when I ask you to touch your elbow with the other hand, your usual sensation and control will return. Now we're going to come out of the formal state of concentration by counting backwards from three to one. On three, you'll get ready. Two, with your eyelids closed, roll up your eyes. One, let your eyes open slowly. Three, two, one. So, Tasha and Jeff, can you tell me how your hand and arm are feeling right now? Uh, my arm feels, I guess, a little bit light. It's it's up, like you told me to put it up, so it's up. Mm. Okay. It doesn't, it's not hard keeping it up, but it's, it doesn't feel any that weird or anything. Are you aware of a relative difference in your sense of control over one hand compared to the other? Um, maybe, I'm not sure. I think it'll depend when I, mm. you need to tell me to do that thing you're going right. to do. Right, okay. How's your arm feeling, Tasha? Um, actually feels kind of tired. Tired. Like I'm exerting. You're exerting. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now take the other hand and push the hand that's been floating up 
back down. Then let go. And let's see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> What's happening, Jeff? Well, it's the same thing that happened when your dad did this with yeah, me yeah. 20 years ago. Uh huh. So I just lifted my hand. Originally, when you said it, I didn't feel like I had some compulsion to do it. I just did it because why not? But then this time when I push down the hand, it does kind of pop up on its own, which is weird. It does feel like it's just doing that. And that's bizarre because the first part I just did, but this part seems to be more like it's just happening. Great. That's the sense of involuntariness that is typical of hypnosis. Okay, sorry. Give me one second here. No problem. Just sitting here with my hand floating up. Good, floating up. (laughs) And I wish I could see it. It's out of the frame. How's how's your hand feeling, Tasha? My hand is down, but it feels light. Like it does feel buoyant, yeah. but it's not itself it floating or doing floating. anything. Okay. So now take your other hand and cup the elbow of the hand that's feeling light and different. Mm-hmm. And tell me, please, how it feels now. Mine feels quite light. I'm not exerting effort to hold it up. You're not? Okay. Mine feels very light, like kind of weird. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like weird and tingly. Uh It's not like lifting or anything, but it does feel kind of like jello, jelly. Okay. All right. So now again, squeeze your elbow with the other hand. Make a fist with the hand that's up in the air. Open it and let it float back down now. Hmm. There's this feeling of wanting to rise. I can feel it in my arm. Mm-hmm. Like it, there's kind of, it's almost like this like exactly um, up and down bobbing. Like it wants to rise and then there's something. All right, now shake both hands and tell me when the control becomes the same. Feels the same now for me. How about for you, Tasha? No, my arm is super tingly. Feels very weird. Tingly? Yeah. How about the lightness? Definitely not Does the it same. still want to float up? It wants to do something. <laughs> it just feels super weird. <laughs> I don't know what it wants to do, but it's like it's telling me like, yo, there's something. Probably wants to check your phone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, keep shaking them and tell me when the control sensation becomes the same. Now it's like cold. Cold. My arm is cold. Yeah. Mm. So what we're seeing here is you're both responding to the instructions. Uh, Jeff, you're doing it a little more exactly the way I presented it to you. Um, mm. And Tasha, you're editing it. You're you're having the experience, but you're transforming it in terms that make sense to you. So mm-hmm. my guess is, Jeff, you're very hypnotizable. And Tasha, you're moderately hypnotizable. You're feeling okay. it, but you're engaging in your own editing and control of the experience mm. and jeff so i'm like i'm yeah. controlling it in real time or like yes that's right that's right you're having it but you're having it in a way that you modify and jeff mm. you're just having it you're just doing it the way i asked you <laughs> to do it and the way interestingly in terms of the reliability of hypnotizability my father did 20 years ago when you when you had that experience then so I would classify you as more of a Dionysian and you more of an Odesian, um, someone who... Odesian's the people in the, in the middle, right? That's right. Well, interestingly, yeah, your dad pegged me through the eye roll. Mm-hmm. So, the, yeah, I met your dad 20 years ago when I was writing Head Trip, and I had a whole chapter on trance, and he was a terrific guide. But he had a lot of authority, and it really 
that stuck with me. You know, I felt very convinced by him. And he mm -hmm. said right at the beginning, I was a high-end Odyssean, mm -hmm. low-end Dionysian kind of thing. And he took me through a very similar thing to you. And the original lifting the hand, I kind of just did, because why not? I didn't feel like I was, I could easily not done it. Mm -hmm. But then the weird floating thing did feel right. quite involuntary. And I found that surprising because I was expecting to be, that, that it wouldn't work for me. Yeah, it's interesting. And the expectation, a lot of people I see expect nothing will happen and they're surprised. That element of surprise is an important part of the hypnotic experience. And we've learned from functional neuroimaging studies that when you go into a state of hypnosis the way you did, you're turning down activity in a part deep in the center front part of the brain called the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex that is part of a network called the salience network that tells you what to pay attention to and what to ignore. So when you hear a loud noise or somebody sends you an emotional signal on your social media, your brain says, oh God, I got to pay attention to that. You turn down activity in that region in hypnosis. And that is what allows you to be more open to things uh, rather than jumping from one thing to another because it's grabbing your attention. You're more in control of your attention because you turn down activity in that network. You said this is, you know, it's pretty stable across time, but mm -hmm. what does the research say about, like, is there, is there different activities or, you know, mental gymnastics we can do to change our type? Well, we're, we're actually studying that now. And with support from the National Center for Complementary Integrative Health, we're using transcranial magnetic stimulation to see if we can mm -hmm. change activity in that mm -hmm. and related regions to change hypnotizability. So we're, we're just now analyzing data from that study. We think it may be possible to make changes like that. And that's really, just to put a point on it, like all our people listening would have done this presumably, mm -hmm. and they'll now know some of them, whether they're more on the Dionysian end, easily hypnotizable, whether it wasn't so much more on the Apollonian end, or maybe somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. And with that information, that can tell you a lot about the personality profile. I mean, I remember your father saying when he thought I was high-end Odyssean, he said, that means you will never be schizophrenic because they tend to be mm -hmm. more Apollonian. I forget what he said about the Dionysian end, or he kind of said like, look, there's certain mental health conditions that are probably going to be that you can kind of get, a, if you're going to have get pathological, those different types are susceptible to certain kinds of mental health conditions and not others. And then beyond that, so I'd like to hear you uh, respond to that. But then beyond that also, if you are say highly, if you are Dionysian, it means that you can then begin to use Anodysian use hypnosis to address a whole series of different mind-body ailments along the lines of what we did in the initial hypnosis, which is when working with anxiety. So this is interesting information. It is. And in general, uh, you know, people used to think of hypnosis as a sign of weak-mindedness. It's not. It's actually an elegant means of mental control. And so what it shows is your brain is working well. So in general, it doesn't mean that it isn't working well if you're not that hypnotizable, but it means if you are, you're using uh, an elegant and useful function of the brain in a way that indicates that your brain is working very well. And you can use it, as you point out, uh, Jeff, to help control pain, anxiety, stress, insomnia. Uh, we're having a lot of good results of people learning to self-hypnosis to just help themselves dissociate the physical arousal that worry and anxiety bring with the physiological arousal that keeps you from going to sleep because you have to have the calming parasympathetic activity dominant to go to sleep. 
And that's why a loud noise will suddenly wake you up with heart rate and blood pressure up and everything. So you can use hypnosis to better regulate the way your body's reacting to stressors and stimuli, even as you're getting ready to go to sleep. And what about the piece around about the mental health challenges, like how certain personality types within your typography are more prone to certain things and not others? Well, it's in general, it is true that the less hypnotizable people are more worried, have trouble dealing with cognitive kinds of problems. So the people who are a little obsessional or controlling tend to be on the low end of hypnotizability. And the people who have more of the what we call psychosomatic problems tend to be on the high end. They experience things through their bodies rather than through thinking them through step by step. And I've had people with the same problem who approach them very differently. We had two women who had pathological hair pulling, we call it trichotillomania, and one was very hypnotizable. And I just got her to imagine she loved animals and rescued stray animals and things. And I said, would you ever pull the hair out of a, a little dog that you found somewhere? So treat your body the way you would the animal. Uh, the other one was very obsessional and controlling, and she would plot out the percent of pretreatment hair pulling each week and show me that it got worse at first and then better later. And for her, it was a, a much more cognitive intellectual process of learning to modulate her behavior and give herself reinforcement for doing that. So same problem, but they approach it differently depending on how hypnotizable they are. Yeah. So for the eye roll test, mm -hmm. if people want to do it at home, what are we looking for? Like maybe we can sit with a friend and they can look at our... Sit with a friend. That's right. So the extent to you just rate from zero to four, the extent to which you can keep looking up as you're closing your eyelids. That's basically it. So if you see... So how much of the whites the, of the eyes? How much of the whites of the eyes you see. And if you see mostly white, that's more on the forehand. And if the eyes have to come down and you're seeing the iris and pupil as the eye closes, that's on the low end. When I was doing it, I was feeling very strong, like my eyelids were fluttering very, very strong. Um, is that like every everybody feels that? <laughs> I'm like forcing to look up. and not, not everybody, but that is, it's a difficult task. And some people um, respond to that with sort of turning it on, off, on, off, on, off. And that's the fluttering that you're getting. So it's a sign of the difficulty of doing it. Yeah. I was struck by how, you know, in esoteric Buddhism and in a lot of the Hindu yogas, there's a gaze, you know, there's the, the looking at the third eye gaze. Yes, that that's exactly you'll right. engage in. And, and I'm wondering how correlated this is, or if you've looked into that, or if anyone's looked into, you know, what, how these are similar. Yeah, because what is the eye roll? What's the deal with it? Why does that show how it yeah, possible? It seems so kind of random and weird. Well, but, you know, drugs that affect a uh, level of arousal often affect eye movement. The reticular activating system, which is part of our arousal system in the brainstem, is surrounded by the third, fourth, and sixth cranial nerve nuclei that control eye movement. And so uh, it is not surprising that our level of arousal is very much associated with, with our eyes and our eye movement. It is our first perceptual defensive response is to look at something and see what the mm -hmm. problem is. So uh, it's not that surprising that eye movements are associated. And looking at the third eye is a Zen exercise that where you look up and close your, while your eyes are closed and you look inward. It's a way of being alert mm -hmm. and aroused but turning inward. Well, I would say it's also interesting in rapid eye movement sleep, there's these movements in the eyes. And I remember talking to, right. or actually I read this in a book by Alan Hobson, yeah. a famous sleep scientist saying that he thinks that 
that when you're rolling your eyes up, it releases acetylcholine, which is a, the neurotransmitter associated right. with dreaming. So in a sense, you're entering a kind of waking dream. Well, I've talked with Alan about this, and yes, and the idea is that um, you you have he's demonstrated that you have to have predominantly parasympathetic activity, lowering heart rate, lowering blood pressure to sleep. And the interesting thing about dreaming is that you're mentally, you're aroused, actually. You're, you know, your brain is very active, but you're inhibiting physical motion. So your body is pretty much paralyzed when you're having rapid eye movement sleep, or you'd all be running around acting in the dream instead of just thinking in the dream. So it's this combination of mental arousal and uh, physiological relaxation that you have in REM sleep. And it's hypnosis is not sleep, but you're right, there is a similarity and this ability to focus intently, but be physically relaxed. Well, this is fascinating. And the whole discussion of trance in general as this innate capacity to get absorbed and then to be open to prompts to explore deeper in the inner world, to change mind and body. So maybe I'll just report now on the initial experience I had, which is when I first started learning about hypnosis, I thought it would feel like something. And to me, it just feels like I guess it does feel a little, you made the prompts for floating, but it does feel almost like a slight dissociation or something mm -hmm. like I, Oh yeah. and I go in and then I was able to kind of follow along with everything you said. And then I got to the screens part and I don't have great visual imagery. So I kind of did it in a washed out way. I mean, this is where you weren't just giving us a hypnotic state. You weren't just exploring hypnosis with us and trance with us. You were also deliberately using it as a place to begin a kind of treatment for anxiety, right. which was really interesting. And I didn't expect that. And I thought about the worry and being able to think about the worry and notice that my body wasn't worried was really <laughs> interesting yeah. along the lines of what you said in the, in the hypnosis. It was like, okay, so I can hold this. And then I visualized sort of a possible solution to it. And I let myself sort of have both those things together in that floaty state. And it, I can really see how this would be a helpful thing for anxiety. You know, I didn't have it. There was no special effects. I didn't feel like I was down in a deep absorbed tunnel far away from everything. I didn't, you know, but it, I can see how something like that would be really powerful for people who are susceptible as a way to treat anxiety, among other things. It's almost like deceptively simple. Like I came out of it. I'm like, I'm not sure what to say about it. I just feel good. I just feel all right, which is kind of the <laughs> point, right? <laughs> that's that's the point. Absolutely. And yeah. I'm very glad that you both feel that way. And it's a great a description of it. I, I think of it as dangerously effective. You know, people are mm -hmm. people are worried about hypnosis, but you can very quickly learn to use it as you have to help deal with problems and and find out right away. There are very few treatments where you can f feel instantly that you're doing something, and this is just a skill that you're learning. You know, I'm I, as you said, I would I didn't come on here to treat you, but I'm teaching you how to use a skill that can help you immediately deal with problems, and you can feel it right away. And for those of your listeners who are interested and want to explore this further, I'm a co-founder of a company, Reverie, that has built a series of hypnosis apps um, that you can download from the app store. Uh, R e v e r i. Go to Reverie, download it. And, and you we'll can include have, the links on the website as well. Thank you. And so you can learn to do this stress management exercise, insomnia, pain control, uh, focusing your attention and problem solving, helping people mm. eat better and stop smoking. And we have a series of hypnotic minutes where you can just take a minute and go into this altered state quickly and address a problem. And so we're hoping that uh, 
I, you know, I, I figure I've used hypnosis with about 7,000 people in my career, which is a lot of people, but, Mm. um, we're now helping thousands of people learn to manage this while I'm talking to you. And it feels very good to me to be able to help people gain access to an ability that lives within them, that they can learn to manage better and help just with situations, just the way you've described it. It's kind of amazing to see how much it's kind of it's filtered into, you know, just kind of regular everyday life. I remember when I went to school and I was doing my psychology specialist, I had this very critical prof who basically just mentioned hypnosis in passing and like, you know, dismissed as dismissed it as pseudoscience. And I found it really discouraging. But now, you know, my, my best friend just gave birth a month ago and she's telling me all about the, the hypnosis um, techniques that she tried and she did the birth entirely without an epidural and oh, right. had this incredible experience, you know, doing it. And so just the change in public opinion and scientific opinion is really encouraging. Well, I'm glad to hear that and congratulations to your friend and her baby. And uh, that it, it's a wonderful thing to discover abilities that we have within us that we just need to unlock and use better. Exactly. Well, that's one of the things that's unique about your your and your father's approach. I remember your father telling me all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. That's right. That well what put. he wanted to do is just show people the technique and then they can do it themselves. That's exactly right. And so is that it, it does seem like there's some overlap with meditation then. I mean... How do you think of that? Um, There are some similarities, certainly. It's an altered state of consciousness. You find yourself, you know, your open presence. You're not fighting feelings as they happen. You're just observing them and letting them pass through you. Um, You're doing a body scan, which is a lot like some of what we do uh, in the hypnosis exercise. You're developing compassion. And the ability to sort of connect with people is part of what happens in hypnosis. I think we three connected um, in an unusual way in a short time, and that's a wonderful thing too. But what's different about hypnosis is it's more Western. It's more focused on solving a problem, dealing with an issue like pain or stress or anxiety, right. insomnia, whereas mindfulness is Eastern. It's, it's a way to be, and if you are that way, uh, and people like John Kabat-Zinn teach you this very well, then other good things will come. So we do it in a more focused way. And we actually find that different parts of the brain are involved. So in hypnosis, as I said, you turn down activity of the anterior cingulate, the salience network. In mindfulness, you turn down activity in the posterior cingulate in the back of the brain. It's a part of the brain that focuses on self-reflection. And so what you notice in hypnosis too is you're, you're sort of just, you don't worried about what it means that you're doing this, you're just doing it. In mindfulness, a lot of the goal is to sort of dissolve yourself and just allow yourself to engage in experience. So they are two important, interesting ways of altering consciousness. They're similar, but they're not the same. Yeah, of course. And there's so many different kinds of meditation too, but that's uh, fascinating. So have you seen that there is a change in the sort of scientific attitude to hypnosis? Because when I was writing my book 20 years ago, it seemed like it was starting to change, but there was also still a lot of skepticism still among the medical community. And I just wonder if you, how you see things now. Well, you know, it's better, but, you know, I, I had to sort of, if you build it, they will come, you know, if you do enough science and I and many colleagues in the hypnosis field have done research that demonstrates we did a randomized controlled trial of people undergoing arterial cutdowns um, and two and a half hour procedures where they couldn't use general anesthesia. We got a reduction in pain in the hypnosis group uh, from five to one during the procedure, elimination wow. of anxiety, and they were all able to use opioids as well. And here's the tragic thing. So 
the hypnosis group had far less anxiety, far less pain. They got done 17 minutes faster, had fewer complications. Wow. If I had a drug that did that and published it as an article <laughs> in The Lancet, you'd be a billionaire. I'd be a billionaire. <laughs> Everybody in the world would be using it. Yeah. And that is not the case. So I remain frustrated. And that's part of why I helped to build Reverie. I thought, I want this out there. And when you think that 100,000 people a year in the United States are dying of opioid overdoses yeah. and hypnosis has not yet killed a single person. This, you know, and people say it's dangerous, yeah. it's weird. It is so much safer. And I use meds. I'm a psychiatrist. I use other things. But when this works, the, the risk-benefit ratio is so much better than with any medication. And so it makes me sort of frustrated and sad that something this useful is still yeah. underutilized and we're overutilizing things that have tremendous risk. And it can't be owned by a drug company. That's exactly it. There's nobody to sell the product. That's that's exactly right. It's all an endogenous natural capacity. And so the potential for democratizing this, you know, access to this powerful healing potential, it's huge. And yet there's no vested interest in doing it from a kind of medicalized, you know, the corporate medical corporate industry, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Well, let's get some people on Reverie. Let's try it you out. You go, guys. Take it right. for <laughs> I certainly hope so. Thank you so much. I have so many more questions. Okay. I just want to talk and talk. Good. But I, we, I, we would love to have you on again. Thank but you. I know that you got a jet. Okay. I do now, but I would be glad to do it again. It's been a real pleasure and I appreciate your interest in it. Thanks for tuning in to the Consciousness Explorers podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this episode, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. See you next week for a whole new adventure.